Amen. Let's think about biblical images for sin. The Bible talks about sin as loving the darkness. That's one image you see in the Old and New Testaments. That those entrenched in sin have a picture of committed to the deeds of darkness. There's an image of being in spiritual exile. That where we were made to dwell with God and know God, sin has alienated us from this. Spiritual exile is an important image to describe our dilemma. Falling short of the glory of God. This is imagery in Paul's letter to the Romans and in chapter 3. That what God has made us for and to share in with Him and to reflect to honor Him, sin has done the kind of effect upon our minds and hearts that we fall short of this aim. Bound in captivity. An image for sin in the Old and New Testaments is that we are a people in bondage and in need of deliverance. Another image that comes to mind in the Old Testament, and you see this a lot in the early books of the Old Testament, an image of spiritual uncleanness or filthiness or dirt, as if there is something unclean that needs to be made clean, as something that has been corrupted or filthy that needs to be cleansed and restored. Connected to this is the imagery of death. The wages of sin is death, Paul tells us. In an image to describe our human dilemma apart from the grace of God is that we are in a state of spiritual death, dead in our sins. It's these latter two images that are especially relevant for our study this morning. As we look at Numbers 19, I want us to remind ourselves that after Genesis 3, we live in a world marked by death, marked by corruption. Moral defilement and uncleanness. In the camp of the Israelites in the Old Testament, all the tribes surrounded the tabernacle, stationed in the center of their life. And you could approach the tabernacle if you were what was called ritually fit, or you were clean externally. And I don't mean of germs or grime on your hand. If you could approach the tabernacle, you were ritually clean, but you could be made unclean in various ways. The loss of bodily fluids and blood was an example. The eating of certain forbidden foods was another. Developing certain skin disorders where externally you looked as if you might be wasting away. Physical contact with a dead body would be another. It could leave you in a state of what was called ritual uncleanness. That the forces and effects of corruption in the world had in some way come upon you. The reason for these images is that God is the God of life. And the Israelites experienced things in their camp that seemed to be anti-life. That seemed to be on the spectrum not of life and peace and glory and holiness. But of marked by things in the fallen world, the forces of death and corruption. It could render them unclean. And if you were considered unclean, you could not approach the tabernacle. There were some uncleannesses that would even mean you were outside the camp for a period of time. In order to dwell in the presence of God, the signs and effects of death in the world had to be dealt with. And in the wisdom of God, the camp of Israel was filled with symbols and rituals that communicated our spiritual need. Every one of us 
We're born outside of the Garden of Eden. We are all exiled, if you will, from birth forward, from a state that we had been made to dwell in, to know God and fellowship with God, but the effects of sin, transgression, and defilement in this life have done the kind of work inwardly and outwardly that we need the grace of God to bring us near to Him. We can think of sin as spiritual uncleanness. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. We think about sin as spiritual defilement in the songs we sing. We sing a lot of songs that deal with some kind of foulness or defilement that sin has caused. And that which only the grace and work of God can alleviate and remedy. We sing things like there is power, power, wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. And the reason we're trying to proclaim lyrics like that is because we believe we live in a world, as Scripture has described it, that has been marred by the spiritual uncleanness and defilement of sin. And we need a remedy that we cannot accomplish ourselves. In God's wisdom, He has designed the life of Israel to have ritual and symbolic experiences and procedures that point to these deeper realities. Now, you may have never heard a sermon this morning on the ashes of the red heifer from Numbers 19. I've never preached a sermon on the ashes of the red heifer. But one of the things I notice when I read the New Testament is that in Hebrews, the ashes of the red heifer are all part of a ritual that point to the cleansing blood of Christ at the deepest level. And we'll look at Hebrews in just a bit. But what God has done in his wisdom through these rituals, which at first glance might seem sort of strange... Um, unfamiliar to us on a practical level, but in the shadowy world of the Old Testament promises and types, they are forward-pointing to the work of Christ in a new covenant. And so if we will follow along together this morning on a rather bizarre ritual, okay, I'll grant us that from our perspective, we look at this and think, what's going on here maybe? We're going to look at how the ground of the gospel continues to be tilled and prepared In rituals like this, the reason you want to think about uncleanness and death in Numbers 19 is because of what has preceded it. This is a description of a ritual this morning, but it comes after Numbers 16 and 17, where there was a debate and dispute over who was the mediating priest within the land of Israel. Who could bring sinners near to God and have the authority to offer sacrifices and be the faithful priest? One of the effects of rebellion in Israel's camp was judgment, death. In number 16, thousands upon thousands of Israelites who were wicked and rebellious had been judged and had died. We should see something this morning in Numbers 19 as a ritual that has in view a real on the ground problem that Israel must deal with. Namely, actual dead bodies in their camp. And if they are rendered ritually unclean and cannot approach the tabernacle of God for fellowship and sacrifice, then what shall be done about the problem of death? And I don't think Numbers 19 raises this question out of the blue. Even in Genesis chapter 2, Adam and Eve were told that if they were to rebel against the Lord, this tree that would mark their rebellion against the Lord 
would be something that would lead to their death, their separation from God. The problem of death is introduced early in the Old Testament. And we sense in a very palpable and strong way the effects of demise and corruption and death in the world around us. It's also very personal to us. We know what it is to experience loss and the distress of corruption of this age. The Old Testament raises the question that the New Testament answers. What shall be done about the problem of death? And the answer is, God, who so loved the world, will send His one and only Son. So we read in verses 1 to 10 this morning, the preparation for this ritual, which lays the gospel groundwork. And the preparation of the ritual begins like this. The Lord's words to Moses and Aaron say in verse 2, This is the statute of the law the Lord has commanded. Tell the people of Israel to bring you a red heifer without defect, in which there's no blemish, on which a yoke has never come. And these various descriptions, these expectations, these conditions, require an animal that is young. And we know that this is uh, not only a cow, but a red heifer. This is a cow that is not bred. This is a cow that is not worked. In other words, this is a young and red heifer without defect, in which is no blemish, where no yoke has ever been placed upon the animal. There there is a, a theme in the sacrificial offerings from Leviticus forward that unblemished sacrifices are necessary. Why would that be part of the ritual of Israel? Well, we want to remind ourselves that a deeper truth is conveyed by an unblemished animal. We are people who are not unblemished. Morally, we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are to bring to God then in this Israelite encamp, so to speak, this encampment. We bring um, with these Israelites these uh, unblemished offerings in the camp of Israel. And the reason the people of God were to do that is because they needed to give to God what they couldn't be themselves. They bring this without defect animal on which no yoke has ever come. And the specific color red, I'm going to try to wrap that into uh, some instruction in just a moment. It's not just any old um, young cow, is it? But rather a red heifer. In verse 3, the continued instructions say, You shall give it to Eliezer, the priest. Eliezer is Aaron's son. Eliezer will not long from now become high priest of Israel. Numbers chapter 20. And so Eliezer is no doubt doing things that would already be part of his training and experience to take the high priesthood himself. We'll also notice that with the preparation of this ritual, the one who prepares it becomes unclean. And it's likely that they wanted to keep the high priest from being rendered unclean and therefore unfit to do any of that work. There was only one high priest in the camp of Israel. So they give this responsibility to his son so that though Eliezer would become unclean, the high priest, his father, could continue that work. It tells us that this sacrifice is taken outside the camp and slaughtered before him. And I want you to notice here what is different with this offering, this sacrifice, compared to everything else we've seen in Leviticus and Numbers. This is not a sacrifice that is killed at the tabernacle at the bronze altar. And we are not prepared for that twist. We have seen over and over again offerings brought to an altar in the courtyard of the tabernacle. Where is this one taken? This is taken outside the camp and slaughtered. Immediately something different is happening. This is a strong distinction from earlier offerings. And it's slaughtered before Eliezer. Which means the priest 
engages in what we might call a, a supervisory uh, state, um, posture. And the slaughtering of the bull or the uh, cow takes place, the red heifer. And then in verse 4, Eliezer the priest shall take some of the blood with, its fe- with his finger. And he sprinkles it toward the front of the tent of meeting seven times. But remember, he's not at the tent of meeting, this tabernacle. He's outside the camp. So sprinkling this blood with his finger toward the tent of meeting means he knows where he is outside the camp and where the tent of meeting would be inside the camp. And he sprinkles this with his finger toward that direction. The direction matters because this is done in obedience to the Lord. The location is what surprises us. This takes place outside the camp. The slaughtering of the red heifer takes place. In verse 4, sprinkling of blood to the front of the tent of meeting seven times. In verse 5, the heifer is then burned in his sight. But again, not on the bronze altar. All of this takes place outside the camp. This is strange. Not only is the location interesting, we also notice the complete consuming of this sacrifice. Its skin, its flesh, its blood with its dung shall be burned. Earlier offerings in Leviticus give us protocols of cleaning the sacrifice, removing certain things from the inside, carving up certain features, draining blood. These specifics aren't reiterated here. After the blood is sprinkled toward whatever direction they are from outside the camp to the tent of meeting, you have the burning entirely of this outside the camp, not just of the sacrifice. What is thrown into the fire? In verse 6, not just the animal is consumed. The priest shall take cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet yarn, throw them into the fire, burning the heifer. Now, I want to emphasize the crimson theme that seems to be undergirding these elements. The heifer is not just any color. What color is it? It's a red color. But notice also cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet yarn. All things that would have a red tint to it. Even the blood is to be consumed in the offering that's given outside the camp. I I think the Old Testament commentators and scholars are right who see the red as an important symbol representing a blood offering. That color extended to the other features, including the very color of the heifer. So a young and red heifer is offered along with cedarwood, hyssop, and scarlet yarn, all thrown into the fire. The priest who has watched this is now unclean. In verse 7, he's to wash his clothes, bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp, but the priest shall be unclean until evening. The one who burns the heifer shall wash his clothes in water and bathe his body in water and be unclean until evening. You have several people involved. The priest who's supervising, the person who's slaughtering and burning... Both people, because they encounter outside the camp an experience involving death, they are unclean. That is what death causes. It is to symbolize the deeper problem. Death and the corrupting forces of sin are at work in the world. What shall be done about death? These individuals are unclean until the evening ends. In verse 9, a man who is clean, a third individual... A man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer. And I take this to mean the ashes of the hyssop branch and the scarlet yarn and the cedar wood. Everything that's been burned. He's to gather this up because it's been reduced to ashes. And he is to deposit 
this gathered ash heap into a place outside the camp, in a clean place, and they shall be kept for the water, for impurity, for the congregation of the people of Israel. It is a sin offering. Even this man is rendered unclean. In verse 10, the one who gathers the ashes of the heifer shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. And this shall be a perpetual statute for the people of Israel, for the stranger who sojourns among them. All of these first verses, verses 1 to 10, are a very distinct ritual involving at least three people. One who slaughters the heifer, the priest who supervises it, named Eliezer here, and a third individual who gathers the ashes. The reason all of these people are necessary is because each role that one of them plays renders that person unclean. And therefore, by the end of this little procedure, a vessel of ashes has been contained. But where is it not taken? It's not taken to the tabernacle. No one shows up, knocks on the outer curtain and says, I've got the the container of ashes. The red heifer ashes to be specific. Instead, these ashes are kept outside the camp to be prepared. They're ready. In other words, when they are needed, these ashes will be available. We also notice here in verses 9 and 10 that this uncleanness will end at evening. Um, We see this on, on the case with the other two people and with this one as well. Now, this ritual has been prepared according to those instructions. But why is it needed? To this point, I've been including language about death. And I've jumped the gun a bit on purpose because now it rises to the surface of why this procedure would be necessary. In verse 11, whoever touches the dead body of any any person shall be unclean seven days. And that is because a dead body is the end result of the corrupting influences and forces at work in the world. It is the reminder that things are not the way they ought to be. The reason there are memorial services and funeral services and gravesides is because this is a broken world. And we know that's not the way it ought to be. We know according to the scriptures that's not the way it's going to be. But it is the way it is now. And the symbolic life and rituals of Israel communicate the problem of death. And in encountering... A, a, a dead body, that is not a sinful thing for them to do. It is a reminder, though, of the brokenness of the world, and ritually they are unclean. Whoever touches a dead body of any person shall be unclean seven days. In verse 12, he shall cleanse himself with the water on the third day and on the seventh day, and so be clean. You say, what water? And by whom? In just a moment, what we're going to read about is the ritual itself is going to involve ashes, mixed in water and sprinkled on the person who was unclean. Unclean by virtue of coming across the dead person. More on that in just a moment. But in verse 12, the cleansing takes place on two days. On the third day and on the seventh day. And that person, after the end of those days, by submitting to this procedure, will be considered ritually fit to approach the tabernacle. The problem of death has been acknowledged. The problem of death with its uncleanness has been dealt with. And this person can draw near to the Lord. In verse 13, whoever touches a dead person, the body of anyone who has died, and doesn't cleanse himself, defiles the tabernacle of the Lord. Now, if somebody hears of the instructions in Numbers 19... And says, well, some of you may want to do this. I don't look at this as something I can see myself doing. 
submitting to on the third day and on the seventh day or coming across this dead body and deciding not to. Somebody who might think that way is now problem is in a problematic situation, not because there's any magic in the ash or because it was sinful to come across a dead body. This is a person who's refusing to acknowledge the problem of the corrupting forces of sin and death in the world and to see God's provision in it. And they are excluding uh, these commands from their life and obedience. That's no safe thing. You, you, could even, you could even imagine someone thinking, all right, I came across a dead body. Nobody saw it. I was by myself. Who's going to know? And these instructions are given because God who is holy and righteous and all-knowing, nothing can be hidden from his sight. There is a sense in which transparency and integrity are at the core of why these procedures would be followed. Because even if someone is not seen by another in someone who has died and coming across those bones and being rendered unclean, the Lord knows. It is to ensure that through the life and obedience of these Israelites, that they fear the Lord who has made things known to them, who is revealing about what it means to approach him. And in the heart of the Israelite camp is the tabernacle, and he is the God of life. And those who have, if you will, the aroma of death upon them now, because of their encounters with, these, uh, with, with the bones or the bodies, what this means is they are now those unclean to approach the God who is life. It would be dangerous for them to flaunt and to come across with brazenness and ignoring these commands. He says the person who touches the dead person doesn't cleanse himself, defiles the tabernacle of the Lord. That person shall be cut off from Israel. Because the water of impurity was not thrown on him, he shall be unclean. His uncleanness is still on him. It was not sinful to come across the bones of someone who is dead. It is sinful to reject the commands of the Lord. So what happens is someone who recognizes the importance of those ceremonies and says, well, I'm not going to do that. Or who would know? At that moment, a line is crossed. They become not only someone who's ceremonially unclean, they are now in moral rebellion. For thus has said the Lord, and they have said, I shall not do it. And that, friends, is a ratcheting up of defiance against the Lord that demonstrates the moral defilement. Not only has that person been rendered ritually unclean, the uncleanness of their human heart has spilled over in rejection of the Lord's commandments. The Lord Jesus uses language about clean and unclean because of the background of the Old Testament. And he teaches the disciples and Pharisees in Matthew chapter 15 that it is not ultimately what goes into the body that makes you unclean, but what comes out of the heart. The clean and unclean imagery about ceremonies and rituals was always to symbolize the deeper realities of our problem with sin. And it's not a problem that somebody else has. It's a problem we have from the heart. That God in His grace welcomes sinners too. So notice, if someone is ritually unclean, the Lord has not said, Moses, you go tell that person, sorry, you're unclean, best of luck to you, you know, so much for the camp of Israel, too bad for approaching the tabernacle. The Lord says, here's my provision for you. 
You're ritually unclean. Here's how you can approach my presence. In other words, the Lord gives these instructions not to reject his people, but because of the defilement of sin in the world, he welcomes sinners to his presence by the means he has provided. It would be foolishness for the person to say, ashes of a red heifer, not sure why any of that matters, I'm going to go do my own thing. At that moment, a a defilement morally rears its head. It tells us in verse 14, this is the law when someone dies in a tent. Everyone who comes into the tent, everyone who is in the tent shall be unclean seven days. That means not only could you be at a place outside your dwelling where you encountered a dead body, it would, not, it would likely be the case that with all the many thousands of Israelites dwelling in tents and dwelling places, that someone would die in your home at some point. And that means that your tent has become a place of uncleanness. And for those seven days, you say, wait a second, they didn't do anything wrong. It wasn't because they did anything wrong. It is the reality of the corrupting forces of sin and death in the world. And that God at the tabernacle is a God of life and glory and majesty and purity and holiness. And we fundamentally are a people unrighteous who need to be brought to our holy God. And experiences ceremonially and ritually like this remind them of their need to come before the God who is holy. And if they don't think that matters, have they not pondered what it means that God is holy? Have they not considered what it means that God is righteous? Have they not considered what it means that they have transgressed God's law and what that would imply? It then tells us in verse 15, every open vessel that has no cover fastened on it is unclean. It's as if you had these open vessels and the, uh, just to picture death as not only something that has happened in that tent, but it's as if it's giving off uh, vibes and aroma that affects a, a kind of a, a moisture, if you will, that comes and lands upon the open vessels. Sealed vessels would be a different thing altogether. But these open vessels, they then become unclean. The powerful forces of corruption and sin in the world is being depicted here in ceremonial language. In verse 16, whoever in the open field touches someone who was killed with a sword or who died naturally or touches a human bone or grave shall be unclean seven days. This is not barring anyone from remembering and memorializing and, and, uh, and gathering together because of the death of a loved one. It is to recognize, though, that for the next seven days, there's a ritual uncleanness that must be addressed. Well, here's what we've seen so far that in Numbers 19. With the red heifer ashes ritual. We have seen that it's to be prepared outside the camp and kept outside the camp for use. We've then seen in verses 11 to 16 why those uses might come about. Because at some point, every one of the Israelites will be unclean because of contact with the dead. There is nobody who will be exempt from this. Somebody will die in their home. Somebody will die outside their home. And most recently in Israel's history... Thousands of Israelites have died. And over the next 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, an entire generation of wicked Israelite rebels will fall to the ground. They must, they must consider and obey these instructions. They will not be able to be exempt from the experience of uncleanness because of death. Now, how is this applied? The ritual works this way. After the preparation of the ashes, it tells us in verses 17 to 19 how the ritual is applied. For the unclean, 
They shall take some ashes of the burnt sin offering. That means the verses 1 to 10 procedure that's happened, that vessel with the ashes, they're to take some of those ashes. And fresh water shall be added in a vessel. Notice it did not say anything about having to go to the tabernacle or involving any priest. This is something that can take place outside the camp and not at the tabernacle. It says the unclean person shall take the ashes. In other words, who gets access to what will deal with the uncleanness caused by death? The one who is unclean can go to those ashes. They're kept in a spot, ready and prepared. They know where to go. The provision has already been made. In verse 17, they take some ashes and fresh water is added to it. These ashes will be sprinkled and not thrown upon them in like a cloud of ashy smoke. Instead, they will be sprinkled because they're mixed with water. It tells us in verse 18, then a clean person, and it doesn't require that it's a priest. A person who's ritually fit will then take hyssop and dip it in the water and sprinkle it on the tent and all the furnishings on the persons who were there. The tent there is not the tent of meeting at the heart of Israel's camp. It's the tent where the person had been living where someone had died. In other words, whatever has been marred, whatever has experienced the corrupting influence of death, it shall be addressed by the sprinkling here. So the hyssop branch is dipped in the water and it's sprinkled on the tent, any of the furnishings, any of the persons who were there and whoever touched the bone or the slain or the dead or the grave. How often or on what days? In verse 19, the clean person shall sprinkle it on the unclean on the third day and on the seventh day. So twice during the seven day period of uncleanness, you will experience a ritual involving Ashes of a red heifer that's been burned with cedar wood, hyssop, and scarlet yarn. And then mixed together with clear, clean water and put upon you by someone who was fit to approach the tabernacle. It tells us in verse 19, Thus on the seventh day he shall cleanse him. He shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water. And at evening he shall be clean. He shall be clean. In other words... The problem is not one beyond the ability of God to address. This is to symbolize in a ceremonial way that sin has brought great defilement and damage and corruption in our very lives and in this world we dwell in. And only God can deal with it. Only God can deal with it. In verses 20 to 22, there's a summary about those who are unclean. I don't really see this as new information. Given what we've seen, we can see some summary comments in verses 20 to the end. That if a man who's unclean doesn't cleanse himself, that person shall be cut off from the midst of the assembly, since he has defiled the sanctuary of the Lord. Because the water for impurity has not been thrown on him, he's unclean. Earlier, we were warned about somebody that decided, I'll just ignore the ashes of the red heifer ritual, and I'll just stick with the other commandments. No, that's dangerous. If God has given you instruction and wisdom to symbolize greater truths that the rituals of your life are to show, you are not above the commandments of the Lord. And you are not the exception to the ceremonies of Israel, he would say to them. In verse 21, it shall be a statute forever for them. The one who sprinkles the water for impurity shall wash his clothes. The one who touches the water for impurity shall be unclean until evening. In other words, when the person burns 
the ashes at the beginning of the ritual, they're unclean. The priest who oversees it is unclean. The person who gathers the ashes is unclean. And even when the actual ritual is applied, the person who sprinkles them mixed in water is unclean. Over and over again, there's an inescapability in this ritual. How shall we deal with the problem of death? And if I can be rendered unclean to approach God outwardly, externally, with my flesh, then what would that say evermore about the problem inwardly that we have in a fallen world? And what shall we do about that? How many red heifers would it take to take away sin? It tells us in verse 22, Whatever the clean person touches shall be unclean. Anyone who touches it shall be unclean until evening. Over and over again, the symbolism and ceremonies make clear where the problem ultimately will lie. And the New Testament has one spot where the ritual we've just looked at is mentioned. And it's in the wonderful book of Hebrews which spends many of its verses interacting with how the Old Testament pointed to Jesus. And one of the ways the Hebrews writer wants to tell you about the purifying power of the death of Jesus is he will bring up to us the red heifer ashes ritual from Numbers 19. So in here in Hebrews 9, we're told in verse 13, for if the blood of goats and bulls And the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer. If they sanctify for the purification of the flesh. I just want to pause for a moment. Hebrews 9.13 is emphasizing the limits of every external offering ever given at the tabernacle. Or in the case of Numbers 19, outside the camp. They can only address the external problem of experiencing some encounter and being rendered unclean, and then that being overcome after a few days. They can give you, if you will, a bodily fittedness to approach the tabernacle. That's what it means that these goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with ashes of a heifer, they deal with the purification of your flesh. But that's not all that we are. We are people, soul and body, who have experienced the defiling work of spiritual uncleanness and sin. And here is his argument. His argument is an if-then statement. But it moves from lesser to greater in its direction. And he says, if the bulls, the goats, and even the ashes of the heifer, if those things dealt with the flesh and could render you to be brought near to God, then how much more would the surpassing sacrifice of Christ have an effect? So his answer, in ver- his uh, statement and argument in verse 14 is, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. How much more will he purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? You know what could never purify your conscience? Ashes of a red heifer. You know what could never secure your redemption before the God who is righteous and holy? Bulls and goats. But the history of Israel's sacrificial system was filled with rituals and ceremonies that had those things as designed signs, forward-pointing to the work of Jesus Christ, whose blood would accomplish something of redemptive significance that no young red heifer ever could. We would be brought near to God 
Because you and I have not just been rendered unclean for seven days. Friends, we should ponder the problem of sin. We should recognize that in our thoughts and in our words and our deeds, we have a daily need in coming before God, knowing that our, our God who is merciful and gracious is worthy of our worship. And we have sinned and gone astray and lived in foolishness and disobedience before God. And what has God done in the message of the new covenant? Well, like in the old, the, the, the announcement to the Israelites were, oh, you're unclean. I'm sorry. There's not anything we can do about that. The Lord in the Old and New Testaments is the God who pursues sinners and who welcomes them through the provision he has installed. And ultimately, those earlier offerings pointed to the Lord Jesus, who was given in the fullness of time. And he was better than a red heifer without defect. He lived without any sin and moral defilement. He was without blemish in the heart. He lived without sin. He fulfilled all the commands of God. And he was given in our place. In fact, Hebrews 13 said Jesus was taken outside the camp. And he went outside the camp and he was offered for us. That his unblemished state could be such that as God and man, he could take our defilement. He could take our uncleanness. He could take our moral impurities and transgressions. And he could satisfy the requirements and the righteousness of God in our place. So that when we look to Jesus, we have what is greater and better than the Old Testament signs and symbols and ceremonies. We have the one whose blood cleanses our sin. 1 John 1.7 says, If we walk in the light as He's in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. The pervading question for people who read the Old and New Testaments, shining upon their hearts, ought to be the question, how can I be cleansed from my sin that I might be brought into right fellowship with God? And friends, the only answer is Jesus Christ. It is the only answer. The Old Testament pointed His way and the New Testament proclaims His arrival and celebrates His once and for all offering. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we are honest with ourselves about our minds and hearts before the shining and penetrating light of the Word of God, we must ask the question, what shall be done about our unrighteousness? And the only answer is the blood of Jesus that cleanses us, not from some of it, but from all of our unrighteousness. Listen, I know the red heifer ritual is strange. I know the ashes that are kept there and are mixed with water and sprinkled. Listen, we read those things and you think, okay, what is that pointing to? Friends, the ground for gospel glory and announcements being tilled right there in Numbers 19. We're being given the impression, rightly, that these Israelites are unclean. How shall they come before God? And the plan of God was to give us His Son. I even think it's interesting that both the third and the seventh day are important in the cleansing. Charles Spurgeon preached on Numbers 19 and its quotation in Hebrews 9. And Spurgeon says, I wonder whether even in this, with the third and seventh day cleansing ritual, 
If it's also a revelation that our being justified through the resurrection of Christ, which took place on the third day. And that Jesus has brought us into perfect rest, which had been symbolized by the seventh day. That even these various acts and cleansings and ceremonies had the forward pointing power that Christ himself completes in every way. I love Charles Spurgeon. He's absolutely right. They're not randomly chosen. These particular days in Numbers 19. But in light of the fullness of God's redemptive plan. We would see how all of this is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who lays his life down for us. We must ask the question. What can wash away my sin? Nothing. And I mean nothing. But the blood of Jesus. Let's stand together and we'll sing that. Let's pray.